Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can think of, has its own history, like salmon, Mondays and pillows. <laughs> oh, I love the idea of stewing something on salmon. Okay. I'm, I'm actually cooking salmon tonight. Or we could do moods, snoods and prudes, <laughs> broods, foods and dudes. I think mm. we should do moody dudes, Sam. But I'd, I'd better be very careful about what I say, otherwise you'll suggest that we really do it in real life. However, yes. this is to digress as always, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of futility is in fact all about the First World War via Oscar Wilde, hard labour in Victorian prisons, so think breaking rocks, turning crank wheels, moving cannonballs. It's also about the charge of the Light Brigade, or that the history of uncles is in fact all about the reign of the boy king Edward VI, one of our favourite Tudor monarchs. And that was one of our homeschooling episodes uh, that we produced during lockdown, uh, lockdown 3.0, I think. And it's good that everyone is back, back to school now. And I've had my jab, uh, ah. Sam, this week. Hmm. Yeah. And I, ha- I had no side effects. I can't praise the NHS highly enough. It was a model of efficiency, a well-oiled machine. So a huge uh, thank you uh, to them for all the sterling work that they are doing in rolling this out in a really efficient way. It's brilliant. Good stuff. I'm yet to have mine. But let me um, introduce all our listeners to who is doing the talking. Um, Let me just say that uh, if history was a Shakespearean sonnet... The man that you've been listening to would be the great, 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 great grandson of its author, the most famous bard of them all, William Shakespeare. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Oh, I love the idea of being uh, related to William Shakespeare. That's very kind. Yes. Um, and the man... That not is, si- if if history was a Shakespearean sonnet, of course. Oh, oh, I, couldn't we sort of have a sort of, you know, a sort of virtual history kind of thing where I was the great, 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 great. I mean, I've, I sort of am in relation to, not necessarily to the sonnet, but... Uh, in relation to the work that I'm doing on gloves at the moment. Oh, I've just had a very powerful meeting uh, with my collaborator, uh, Sue Broomhall, uh, way over the other side of the world in Australia, uh, to plot uh, the final chapters of our book, or the fi- the writing of the final chapters of our, our what is going to be a magnificent book. But however, this is to digress, uh, as the man not sitting opposite me, because we are still social distancing, 
uh, despite the fact that lockdown is opening up. Uh, let's just say that if he were a grandparent-related historian, he'd only be grandfather time himself. So learned and paternal is his custodianship of the past. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, your friend and mine, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, today, obviously, we are doing grandparents, which is quite exciting and I think quite appropriate and apt. And it could certainly have been one of the topics that we did during our um, our COVID phase, where we were doing loads of crazy things on um, everything linked with COVID, like isolation. I remember that being a really, really good one. Um, but grandparents, because, you know, so much of us are, are, are being... Uh, kind of astutely aware of how COVID has affected the elder generation. So I think it's entirely appropriate that we now shine a light on grandparents and how massively important and interesting they are. Um, obviously, James, we can do a little bit of a, a, a brain dump here on the various ways we can we can think about the history of grandparents. We can. And one of the reasons we're doing this and one of the things that we talked about during the COVID crisis was this oral history project um, which was for children who were homeschooling uh, to phone up their grandparents and interview them about their about their past. And I think one of the things that I'm really interested in and I'm going to talk about is grandparents and oral history. So grandparents as a resource for um for memory about family history. And I spent last night the, into the early hours reading a brilliant article in oral history uh, by Anna Green um, called Grandparents' Communicative Memory and Narrative Identity. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about that. And it's all about the ways in which in which um, uh, adult grandchildren remember their their grandparents and the way in which that builds their sense of identity um and the way in which they memor they they memorize um and remember their their family histories so that that's mm-hmm. that's fascinating we can also think about we can also think about grandparents um in in historical terms and i think i was reading some other very interesting stuff about about the rise of grandparents so when did people live long enough to actually be able to become grandparents and there's some really interesting work based on archaeological analysis of teeth uh, not only looking at the grinding down of teeth the wear of teeth but also the the sort of dentine in teeth to actually look at how old people would have been when they died Um, and fascinating stuff about that and about Neanderthal man um, and you know, the fact that actually grandparents are a relatively recent phenomenon. Mm. And then what are the social and cultural and economic, you know, um, implications of that? And there are all sorts of things about the, the, the importance of grandparents as custodians of oral history and knowledge and wisdom and passed down experience there are the sort of roles that grandparents might play within the family. How are they? How are they thought of? Um, we can also think about, you know, about uh, the idea of grandparents, you know, culturally. We can think about the term grandparent and and how how it can be a sort of positive term of a sort of a, a sort of wise and venerated person versus somebody who is is a sort of um, is is sort of less. 
um, positively looked at. Yeah, 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 out of touch, and and you you know referring uh, you know wayward teenagers you know calling people granddad you know <laughs> when they're sort of seen sort of over over the hill. Yeah, yeah, it's great, isn't it? I mean, I've also been thinking about it in terms of um, Prince Philip. That's another, ah, another way you can look at it. So I, I actually wanted brilliant. to start, I'm going to start by thinking about it in terms of royalty, which is, um, uh, it's an amazing rabbit hole. And I'm going to start doing this by going back to the introduction where I said that, um, if you remember, James, that uh, if history was a Shakespearean sonnet, you would be the great, 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 great grandson of William Shakespeare. And curiously, we know that that would actually be uh, completely historically impossible because there are no direct descendants of William Shakespeare living today, um, which I, I found this fascinating. So Shakespeare uh, marries Anne. They have three children, Susanna, born in 1583, and then um, twins, Judith and Hamnet, who were born in 1585. Hamnet dies uh, at age 11 in 1596. Susanna, his daughter, married someone called John Hall in 1607, had a child, Elizabeth, in 1608. And then that Elizabeth, she was married twice. So that Elizabeth was Shakespeare's granddaughter. She was married twice in 1626 and 1649, but she never had any children. So we know, therefore, that there are no direct descendants of William Shakespeare living today. So James Daybell cannot be the great, 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 great grandson of William Shakespeare. Um, which made me wonder about who you could be related to, James. And um, <laughs> when we did our, uh, we did a podcast on the history of names, we were looking at the Doomsday Book, and that was fascinating. And we talked a little bit about your name being Norman French. I think it is, yes. Yeah, do you know anything else about that or not? Uh, very little. No. Okay. Well, uh, let, let me let me tell you. Uh, so it first appears in the Doomsday Book of 1086. There are several daybells who appear, and they appear as landowners after the Norman conquest, particularly in Huntingdonshire, Cambridgeshire, and Suffolk. Um, and anyway, the first recorded instance of a daybell is a surname occurring in 1199. And Where did you is, find this from, Sam that, Willis? I've been researching your family, James. Oh, and, bless you. And then uh, this is in Thomas Theobald, so T-E-O-B-A-L-D, which is a, a kind of an early version of Daybell. Now, it's, this is actually interesting because no one's entirely sure where it comes from, and it might be um, of French derivation but some and, and possibly pre-Christian as well. Um, there's some belief that it's actually linked to the Romans uh, and Debilis, uh, which you'd like this, James, because it means uh, to do with someone who's a doctor or healer, someone who deals with the sick, because debilis obviously means poorly or weak in Latin. Um, otherwise, it's probably linked to the old French Theodore, Tibald, Tibble, Dibble or Debel. Or, you know, Theobald is a very well-known um, surname as well. What's interesting about this, of course, James, is it means that your great, 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 great grandfather may in fact be the Viking king Rollo. <laughs> Oh, which excellent. I really like about. So um, this was a very, very famous, famous Viking who came across to northern France. He was enormous. Um, he was known as Rollo the Walker because he weighed more than 140 kilos. He had a height of he was more than two metres tall. Certainly born in the mid 9th century. Not sure if he was Danish or Norwegian, um, but he certainly... Um, was part of the Viking fleet, actually commanded the Viking fleet that besieged Paris between 1885 and 1887. Uh, incidentally, I should just say that's one of my most fascinating facts about the Vikings, is that their, their ships were so shallow of draft, and you think of them being coastal raiders, but they managed to get all the way up the Seine 
to attack Paris. Um, he's uh, Rollo is given grants um, by King Charles in 918. And then what happens is that they, they gradually adopts the, the pre-existing administrative system, the ecclesiastical system of northern France. They marry into um, a French Catholic culture. So he actually marries, marries Popper of Bayeux. Lovely name, Popper. Popper of Bayeux. She is daughter of Count Berengar of Rennes. And they have a son together, William Longsword. Now, William Longsword then has a son. So this is Rollo's grandchild, Richard the Fearless. Proper, proper good names. And so William Longsword and his son, Richard the Fearless, basically create the Duchy of Normandy. Um, they're completely mixed up with the, the, their, their maternal uh, French and Catholic culture. They establish Normandy. And Rollo is the great, great, great grandfather of William the Conqueror. And that means, James, that Elizabeth II, uh, the British royal family, in fact, all current European monarchs are actually related to this Viking called Rollo. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Daybell is also uh, related via many, many, many lines of grandparents to uh, the Viking Rollo. Now, bear with me, because this is where it gets quite interesting. I've been thinking about Prince Philip, OK? So he died as a grandparent, obviously. But it made me think about kings or queens actually having a grandparent. And I do not have the answer to this. But the more you think about it, the more interesting it is. Um, so it might be reasonably common for a serving monarch, or it's only possible for a serving monarch to have an extant grandparent. But back in time, that was not the case because so many of them died. And this may um, be just applicable to the, the paternal side rather than the maternal side. I'd like to find out more about it. Um, but if you think about what happened in medieval England, so from 1066, of the 40... English monarchs who reigned, six were killed by their subjects um, and five of the six were, of them were murders, the exception being the execution of Charles I. And so, so and one of the key things about this is that a central feature of that kingship is that they were very prone to being killed. It was different in France where actually they were less executed and it was a, a much more... Uh, established steady monarchy but the point is they remain kings until their death right so what I'm getting to here is is how unusual it would have been for a monarch to have had an extant grandparent and then I realised the only way around this was at the times where the crown was taken by usurpers uh, which is obviously that there are plenty of examples of that in England. You've got William I, Stephen, Henry IV, Edward IV, Richard III, Henry VII, and then William III. Now, I looked into this a little bit to find out which one of them, as usurpers, would have grandparents who were not monarchs and hadn't been monarchs of the country these guys became kings of. Um, and it all started to slightly unravel because of age. So in theory, it could have worked... In theory, like Henry VII could have become king of England. He could have had an extant grandfather. Uh, but the age at which people died made this um, very, very difficult indeed. And uh, that's about as far as I've got. But I would really like some answers. I'd like to know which, if any, English or French monarchs 
had extant grandparents when they were king. And I don't think the answer is going to be very many. And I'd like to know who was the first. Um, but I don't have the answer to it. And it's all to do with changes in life expectancy, James. Ooh, very good, Sam. Very good, mm. Sam. Uh, they may have grandfathers on the... They may have maternal grandfathers. Yeah, OK. Um, so that might be one way of thinking about it, rather than the, um, you know, following it through the patrilineal line and, and um, you know, following on. Um, yeah. That so I may be that, one way of looking at it. Yeah, and if, they, if you only do it through the patrilineal line, then there's every chance that they may have been monarchs of somewhere else. Yes. If they yes. become a usurper and they, they take the throne of England, then their father could quite happily have been king of somewhere else, or grandfather. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Mm. Anyway, a bit of history, a bit of, bit of research there. Un, untapped research, James. Excellent, excellent. Well, I, I want to take us in a different direction, into back to what I was talking about with oral history. And yeah, you know, this is the idea that grandparents are a wonderful resource for the history of the 20th century. And I, I encourage people all to go out and, you know, talk to their grandparents, you know, particularly at, at, at this time uh, when they're often lonely and they're facing separation for during lockdown. And when I think about my own grandparents, I have incredibly sort of vivid memories of them as a young child. I had two sets of grandparents. I was lucky enough for them to be... Or, all four of them alive uh, for most of my childhood, so into my teenage years. And for me, they were a wonderful sort of source of, of of wisdom, but also deep knowledge about the family and about the generations that had gone before them. And I think historically, grandparents are custodians of knowledge, of history and passing it down from one generation to the next. And I remember very clearly as a young child having spending a lot of time with both sets of, of grandparents. I remember my, my grandmothers uh, very fondly. Um, I remember my talking to my both grandfathers about their roles during the Second World War. Um, and my maternal grandfather spent time in, in Egypt. Uh, my paternal grandfather... Um, was at Oxford uh, as a young man. He was orphaned very young, um, brought up by with two other brothers by maiden aunts and then sent away to school at the age of seven and then went to university. And so, um, and then war broke out and he went off to, to fight in the war, left, left Oxford sort of after only having been there two years um, and then, you know, had a very interesting war. Uh, and I remember actually interviewing him about this when I myself was 10 or 11 and I was doing a history project about the Second World War. And he very kindly produced two tapes of his stories from the war that I could put into this enormous black box that I'd made uh, to house all of my uh, historical research. See, even at an early age, Sam, I was a, <laughs> a budding historian. Um, I, I, I was thinking... Um, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what on earth did I do with those tapes? And then I remembered that as a as an eleven year old, I wasn't that I wasn't that sort of interested in history and posterity and preserving things. When in fact, I taped 
uh, the charts from Radio 1 over <laughs> them. And I look back now thinking, oh, my God, you know, this is absolutely dreadful. What was I thinking? But what some of my most vivid memories of them are, are not only when they were living, but also when they were dying. And I wasn't there when my grandmothers died, um, but I was there when both grandfathers died. So I was in the hospital, I was in the hospital room, and I think that was one of my first uh, experiences of death. And then one, and grandparents' funerals were one of my first experiences of funerals. And I have a very vivid memory of my grandfather suffering from a stroke and riding in the ambulance with him. And and I think I think it's it's things like that that really bring um, that really bring to mind those sort of those memories uh, of them. Uh, and I, I, and, you know, and I can look back in a very sort of nostalgic sense, um, you know, very lovingly of them, but also I think, I think as an oral historian and as a historian working in that area, it isn't just about, it isn't just about sort of looking back nostalgically. It's also thinking critically about what memory does and, and how, relationships with grandparents build memories that you have and how that then fits into your own identity and this connects to the article that I was reading in oral history by Anna Green uh, which was published in it's the it's volume 47 uh, spring 2019 grandparents communicative memory and narrative identity and it's absolutely fascinating and it's about the it's about a New Zealand project called the Missing Link Oral History Project, and which has interviews with sixty multi generational families, uh, and they contacted these randomly uh, from the the general electoral roll, um, and there are all sorts of stories that come out of this, but also what what I think is is really key is the number of adults that they were interviewing who were reminiscing about their grandparents. So one one sort of component of this project is actually trying to look at these personal narratives that people are are talking about in relation to to grandparents. And it's not necessarily looking at grandparents as custodians of knowledge and passing it on, although that's one way of thinking about this and the meanings of grandparents and the influence that they had. But it's also thinking about how at a really key stage between about the age of sort of 13 to 21, when when adolescence, if you can coin that period as a period of adolescence, when people are forming their particular individual identities, it's the ways in which the the influence of grandparents helped sort of helped explore these personal values, beliefs and goals that people see solidifying during this period. And the project is based on a range of, of interviews, 146 interviews. And what they it's it's fascinating that what we're seeing is different memories, different sorts of memories, depending on how old the the person was when their grandparent was around and there are two sort of two sort of distinct differences between um, the adults that are remembering back to when they were young children with their with their grandparents and those who are teenagers and those who are 
those who are young children tend to remember it in sense of the senses. So in the sort of the smells and tastes that were evoked, whether it be you remember the the sort of smell of a grandmother's perfume or, you know, a, the pipe tobacco of a of a grandfather, or you might remember the sounds of a, of you know, of their, their house source or something like that. Where if I think in my own terms, one of my one of my abiding memories is of my the perfume that my grandmother war but also the sound of my grandfather's lungs filling up with water as he was dying and that kind of death rattle was something that absolutely just lingers lingers with me and i you know i um yeah still still have it as a really vivid memory um so so the idea then is that is that is that children who were young uh, when their grandparents were, were alive, think in terms of, of senses. And I'll give you an, an example here. Um, there's a, they interviewed a, 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 an interviewee called David, who's a business manager, who was born in 1962. He lives in the Tasman region of New Zealand. He's of Lithuanian and Swiss descent. And he remembers his maternal Swiss grandmother, and this is the only grandparent who was left alive. And in particular, what's striking about this is the sense of smell, taste, and touch. And I'll give you just a little extract of her, of the of the interview here. Um, I imagine my grandmother also had a rough trip, albeit later. So this is about her coming across uh, to New Zealand in the late nineteenth century. And then the interviewer says, you've no idea why they came? No, unfortunately. No, no, I don't. There's quite a few Swiss around the south part of Tar Taranaki. Um, we used to go to Swiss picnics, which were great fun. They were bizarre events. Why? We used to go to this little garden setting. It was like an A&P show, slightly smaller than an A&P show. They loved to talk and they loved to tell stories. So if you wanted to go and find a rich conversation about history, then I would go down that route, down that the Swiss ancestors, because they could all tell yarns. I remember my uncle, my mum's brother Ernest used to turn up and we'd he'd have you in stitches. He would tell you the most amazing stories. I can't remember any of them. But he did remember his grandmother's Swiss baking. I think of things, and now I'd be embarrassed to say because I can't remember. Corker, some of the stuff that you used to get, there, there was a. It was a kind of like pastry base with a custard with rhubarb and cinnamon on top. Must have been rhubarb, possibly apple, and it was a big baked in a big tray and cut up. Man, it was delicious. Um, and so he goes on sort of, you know, remembering things about the, the ginger and the icing sugar and the smells and all of this kind of stuff. So there's a sort of sense in which there's a really sort of haptic sort of sensory um, sort of emotional memory uh, of, that's connected with, with childhood and that you connect can connect to, you know, Swiss recipes that are then passed down in a cookbook. And sort of so you've got these ideas that there are these... There are these sort of documents that are passed down from from grandparent through the family that sort of continue that um, that tradition. And then when you get to when you get to adolescent children, uh, things are things are much more sort of cogent, and it, it moves into a sort of you know something that's much more connected to to memory and 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 sort of cognitive 
uh, th thought, you know, rather than something that's merely associated with senses and, and images. And there's another um, example here of a, an engineer called Paul, who was born in 1974, and who, who traces his New Zealand ancestry back to Norwegian, Czech, Scottish and English settlers. Um, and he, he remembers his, his grandfather in particular. Uh, and one of the things that he, he remembers about his, his grandfather is his Christianity, so his Christian values that seem to inform a lot of the way in which he lived his life and the way in which you know, he, he organised himself. He says, my grandfather came from a family of 14, grew up quite poor. I think his father might have been an alcoholic or close to it, and I think left the family, left his mother to fend for herself. So that would explain the poverty and quite a hard upbringing. So I think, I'm not sure when he left school, but assume it was relatively young. He goes on, my grandfather on that side is somebody I've always looked up to for his character, partly because of his upbringing, but he was also very involved in the community through the church. And so he goes on in that in that kind of in that kind of vein, remembering all of these sort of, you know, religious qualities of his of his life. Um, so I think it's absolutely fascinating, you know, the way in which grandparents are not just an uncritical sort of um, resource for thinking about how things were in the past, um, but also they are really formative in how we think about our own identity and build our own identity as individuals. And just to sort of end on this little segment, I think it's really interesting to think about how if you are interested in talking to or, or you or your children or if your children yourselves listening to this, think about how you are, think about talking to grandparents to explore your roots, your own family history and identity. Think about whether um, you're interested in the history of the 20th century. My, my own uh, eldest daughter came home from school the other day and is studying World War II and one of her projects was actually to get in touch with uh, a grandparent and talk about what they remembered from that period. But it's worth thinking about the kinds of questions that you might ask grandparents. You know, think about what's their earliest memory. Think about, you know, what was their favourite toy as a child? Um, what, TV programmes, nicknames, favourite subjects at school. What was school like? How is it different from now? Um, you know, what was your family like? Talk to them about family members. What was it like growing up where you were you know where did you grow up what did you want to be when you were older holidays where did you travel you know and talk to them about technologies about aeroplanes um talk to them about school were they a good child naughty um talk to them about their friends talk to them about when they met you know when grandma met grandpa what what job did they do where were they born what was it like being you know, a child at the time when they were a child? What was their favourite food? What were their favourite pastimes, activities, books? Um, what were what, what were your own parents like as children? You know, where did you live? Um, you know, and, and all sorts of things like that that are really good prompts to get them talking about their own lives in a sort of, in a historical context. So there we are, Sam. That's oral history. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely fantastic. And it's so, so worthwhile doing. It makes you realise that there are 
all sorts of strands around you connecting you to the past. One of the cultures that I've spent time in uh, that is particularly conscious of that is, of course, the Chinese. Spent a great deal of time out there. And um, ancestor worship is a really important part of um, of Chinese culture. It's actually, it's interesting. It's, um, it, it's known, I suppose, as the Chinese patriarchal religion. And although ancestors are venerated, it's actually almost exclusively focused on on male ancestors. So there's, there is a, a significant imbalance there between male and female. But um, it does make you stop and think about the value of grandparents and how they and why they were and have been so important to human life. And um, in terms of evolution, this is, has, been, has been considered. There are a number of ways of thinking about that, but you'll be able to identify it with yourself if you've ever been given you know, a few quid by your grandpa to go and, go and do something or they've helped pay for you to go and, I, I don't know, go and um, learn, uh, pay for some cricket lessons or learn to dance or whatever it might be for your kids. Um, that contribution of economic and social resources to descendants has a huge impact on the way that the next generations can then survive um and if you go back to well i mean a, a really a, a significant period ago and james you were talking about neanderthals and how what the, the place is in human evolution for grandparents it makes you think about uh, it's the transmission of 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 knowledge whether it's about survival whether it's cultural knowledge passing down of poems passing down of understanding of the natural world world um understanding of the environment it makes you realize just how crucial this all is and then when you have multi-generational families you have um grandparents even great grandparents you've got these other layers these kind of increased increased layers of families multi-generational families who can then all work together to help the the youngest in the generation to learn from the past to learn the lessons that have kept them alive and which they've acquired throughout their entire life and one then once you've, you you're expanding the, the sheer number of people who are around then it leads on to to greater trade networks and also um, developments in individual identity and developments in all sorts of cultural and social distinctions for that particular society. So I just wanted to make the point that um, respect for your ancestors, whether it's actual veneration and worship is, is in China or whether it's just a kind of a, a, a fundamental way of actually existing and one of the things that everyone should do, there are some very, very sensible reasons for it, and that I think everyone should bear that in mind. Excellent. That makes me think about the National Grandparents Day uh, that they have in in America. Uh, that was sort of that came around in the in the seventies to honour grandparents. So Mrs. McQuaid you know, put this forward, and it's still going today. I mean, you just Google uh, National Grandparents Day, and there are all sorts of websites set up to to sort of explain the history of it, but also to set people up to honour grandparents, the kinds of activities that you can do, grandchildren sort of showing love for their for their for their, their grandparents. And actually when you think about, you know, the importance of of making sure that the 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 elderly, you know, are not separated and isolated and lonely, this is a really interesting sort of structural way of doing it. But what we've been looking at so far, I think, is really positive relationships with grandparents and grandparents being 
these sort of honoured figures. And what I want to end with is an example of exactly the opposite. And I want to, you know, to talk about the way in which, you know, family life is not always uh, sweetness and light and that grandparents aren't also aren't always these sort of honoured figures. And there are often real rifts between generations and I, I want to return to an example that we've talked about in, in earlier episodes. I think when we talked about the history of medicine, I think we talk about patients. And there we looked at a, at a woman uh, called Elizabeth Freak, uh, who was born into a, a sort of wealthy royalist household uh, in 1641, so just on the eve of the uh, British Civil War. Um, she's born into to, um, uh, Ralph Freak and Cicely Culpepper, um, and she then um, she then marries and spends some time in Ireland, and then comes back and is in um, and is in Kent, uh, and and then lives in was born in Kent and then lives in in Norfolk, and she has left some really remarkable manuscripts. Um, behind and there are several drafts manuscript drafts of them that survive uh, and they're entitled some few remembrances of my misfortunes uh, which have attended me in my unhappy life uh, since I was married which was November the 14th 1671 and in th these have been edited and in uh, in this these writings she describes her really difficult relationship with her daughter-in-law uh, and also something that a really tragic uh, occurrence uh, with her her grandson. So she's kept apart from her her grandson, who she who she really loves. And I just want to read uh, some of the extracts here. And this comes from a book uh, edited by the wonderful Ralph Holbrook, who I was lucky enough to have as a, a supervisor many many years ago, uh, called The English Family Life, fifteen seventy six. Uh, to 1716. I think you can still get a copy of this. If any of you are interested in early modern family history, it's a wonderful collection of diaries. And but I just want to read you this, some of these extracts. 1704, Saturday, November the 18th. My dear son, his wife and my two dear grandchildren and their three servants came to Bilney after they had been near four months in England my dear son loaded with his dropsical humour and grown so big and fat with it, I hardly knew him. 1704 to 5, January the 1st. I begged of Mr. Freak to give my dearest son £50 and a year's interest for a New Year's gift, which he gave him. I gave him £10 for a New Year's gift. The next day, Mr. Freak and I in my chamber, speaking of it by ourselves, only my maid, who had lived a great while with me, my daughter in her own chamber, that means her daughter-in-law, stood hearkening at the door, flew into the chamber to us and told Mr. Freak, her father-in-law, he might be ashamed to speak of such a trifle of that as that gift before my servant. She said she had a good mind to kick her downstairs and said she would be gone herself if I did not turn her out of doors. So after I was forced to discharge her and take a stranger about myself after she had lived three times with me and the last time two years want one month. My daughter was near two months at Bilney and never said to her father or me, Good night or good morrow. 
Monday the 7th of May. My dear son, his wife and my two dear grandchildren left me alone at Bilney and went away to London. Mr Freak carrying them up at his charge as he did entertain eight of them here half a year, in which time I often begged of my daughter the youngest child, her son John, finding him no favourite, and I loved him to my soul because he was the picture of my dearest son, but she as cruelly denied him to me and carried him away from me, which turned me to a violent sickness for above six weeks. I thought it would have been my last. May the 10th. Notwithstanding this and several other cruelties to me, I sent my daughter up to London, paid on sight by my cousin John Freak a hundred pounds to ease their expenses in London, for which and their half-year being with me at Bilney, eight of them, servants and horses, and all manner of bills, pothecaries, letters, smiths, near twenty pound in cord, etc., five asses, a horse to drive them to Bristol, all of which never deserved thanks for them. June the 10th, Sunday, about two o'clock. My dearest grandchild I had so often begged for, being like my own dear son, near four years old, and in my eyes the loveliest child was ever seen by me, by name Mr. John Freak. He, with his brother, Mr. Percy Freak, and Mr. Molson, their landlord's two sons, where they were lodged, where Tom Molson found my son's pocket pistols, charged and primed, and so left by his man Perryman, which pistol the lad took, and discharged by accident in the head of my dearest and best beloved grandchild, Mr. John Freak. The bullet went in at the eye, and though all the means of London was used, yet no help, so that on Wednesday the 13th of June, about five o'clock in the morning, my dear babe gave up his soul to my God, who would not have taken root and branch from me had it been left by my cruel children, but God forgive them, and I shall ever lament for it. For I have set my whole heart on it, which it was has broke, that and me for any comfort in this life, Elizabeth Freak. It's a really extraordinary bit here. She then describes... Monday, June the 18th, my dearest grandchild, Mr. John Freak, was brought down from London in a hearse to me to be interred in Bilney Chancel, where he lies at the upper end, and where, God willing, I will lie by him as fast as I can get to him. I lost my child to show their undutifulness and cruelty to me, which God forgive them. Elizabeth Freak. It's extraordinary, the... the the, the intimacy of this writing, the way in which she's describing the sort of very tempestuous and troubled relationship with her daughter-in-law, the way in which she's denied access to her grandchild, something that she sees as deeply disturbing, emotionally awful, and then to have to deal with the death of a grandchild by this kind of accident being shot accidentally in the head. Um, and then wanting to wanting to be buried next to him as quickly as possible, you know. So so upset is she by this. So there, that's the sort of you know history of seventeenth century grandmothers. There, Sam. Wonderful, isn't it? Really, really great stuff. I, I think we should do more on the history of grandparents. I've just realised, James, that it is uh, is the birthday of my great granny. 
Uh, ah, she is no... Happy birthday, great granny Willis. She's no longer great granny Willis. She's no longer alive, unfortunately. But it was. Ah. Um... <laughs> no, I've just realised that Patricia Willis. Uh, yeah, so maybe think about yes. her. Uh, a wonderful lady, and she she wrote some stories. I've got them in it by my desk, which is great. Oh, uh, guys, I do hope you've enjoyed our history of grandparents. If you want to uh, keep in touch with us, please follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Dr Sam Willis. And I'm on Twitter at James Dable, and the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also literally all over social media. Uh, we are. You can hit us up on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. You can also see our website to see everything that we are up to, which is historiesoftheunexpected.com. And we also have a Patreon page. Uh, histories of the unexpected uh, if you are able to find a few pence uh, cents uh, euros whatever uh, the currency you have uh, to support what we're doing here at histories of the unexpected that's it for now guys we'll be back again soon cheerio bye guys Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.